Hi, I'm Carmen LaBurge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge. Helping you wake up, remembering this is our Father's world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBurge on Faith Radio. say there's going to be a consuming news cycle today. So you have a choice to make. Are you going to be consumed by the news cycle today or or are you going to be a conscious, conscientious, discerning consumer of the news as it cycles today? Let's just pause there and consider that. There's going to be a consuming news cycle today. So are you going to be consumed by the news cycle Or are you going to be a conscious, conscientious, discerning consumer of the news as it cycles today? COVID deaths have now surpassed a million worldwide. Democrats in the Senate are trying to figure out how to block the confirmation of an eminently qualified female jurist named Amy Coney Barrett to serve on the Supreme Court because they don't, frankly, like her Christian convictions. Uh, The first debate in the 2020 presidential election is going to take place tonight. The president of the United States is under renewed scrutiny related to his uh, tax, uh, his approach to taxes and paying them. That's all I'm going to say about that. Um, And then you and I are dealing with whatever the very real world issues are for us, the everyday things, the everyday things of the heart and the home and kids and parents. And health and complications and home economics, the economics of our homes and on and on and on. So what is essential news today? As the news cycles through, what is essential news today? Right this minute. I got a really short answer to that because it's the same answer in every moment of every day in terms of what's really essential about the news. So here it is. If you've ever wondered every single day, what's the essential news right now? Right now, in this minute, what is the essential news? It's the good news of the gospel. The good news is the essential news. As the rest of the news cycles through, which it does every single day, seeking to be an all-consuming fire, dumpster fire most days, the essential news today is the same essential news that has been the news of all time, and that is God is, and God is good, and God has got this. The good news of the gospel is that God is. And even though we are fallen, God has sent forth his son, Jesus Christ, to do for us what we could not do for ourselves, and that is make the sufficient sacrifice necessary to allow God's holiness to be satisfied and God's love to be extended in the cross. That's, that's the good news, and that is the essential news of the day. And everything else, we view everything else as not only secondary, but we view everything else through the lens of the gospel. And so 
how does God see what is consuming the news of the day? How does how does God view a million COVID deaths worldwide? And how does he view what's going on in my body or in my sick kid or in my dying parent? How does God view life and death of every person? How does God view uh, the person who has been nominated to fill the vacancy on the U.S. Supreme Court? And how does God view the United States? And how does God view this election process and this election cycle that we find ourselves in? Um, Delts keeping in mind here that, you know, four years is only four years. And as we debate things, how does God view the things that we debate and the sides we take in those debates? And how does God view what's going on in my own heart and in my own head and my own home and all of the issues that confront me today? Precious child of the living God, if you hear nothing else in the news today, hear this. There is good news. And his name is Jesus. And everything else is secondary. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. We'll be right back. Pitts is joining me right now. You can follow him on Twitter at JNickPitts. He's a fellow at the Institute for Global Engagement. And I'm just going to ask him uh, straight up this morning. So, Nick, Christian is trending on Twitter. Are you in on that? Am I in? I am. I'm aware of it, but I have no idea why it's trending. Well, I'm going to attach I'm going to attach a I'm going to post a tweet here that includes, you know, you as the referent and the hashtag Christian as trending and see what happens on Twitter when I do that. Don't you think the whole thing will just well, blow I, up? <laughs> well, I thank you for drawing all that necessary attention on me on Twitter and raising the expectations and the stakes for me <laughs> for the next tweet that I get. <laughs> right? There you go. Um, I have no idea how stuff trends on Twitter, and so I, I just am going to ignore that for right now. Okay, populate. <laughs> I want to I talk about babies and population and why population matters. So um, maybe the population conversations we're having on, we're having in my little local community right now are, boy, we seem to have a lot of people moving in to our community, um, most of them from, from places and spaces that are very blue. I happen to live in a very red place. Um, mm-hmm. People moving from urban environments to my community, which is fairly rural. Um, and I had a conversation with my tiny, tiny, tiny little local post office yesterday that they're now out of mailboxes. So the population yeah, yeah. issue in my little tiny little community is different than maybe the conversation you and I are about to have. Apparently, a lot of people are not going to have babies because of COVID. Talk with us yeah. about these 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 sort of predictive models and what yeah. why population matters and what it means. Yeah, so it's it's very fascinating. I literally had the exact same conversation with my dad, who is in Clarksville, Tennessee. But what we're finding, though, is that it's just so expensive to live in cities, essentially. essentially. Derek Thompson over at The Atlantic has written a, a great piece on this. It's just so it's just too expensive to have a family 
in, say, New York City was one of the uh, cities that he targeted in his research. But what we're finding, though, is that though smaller communities and rural communities are seeing upticks in populations. So, for example, in Clarksville, Tennessee, if you build a new home, you're not going to get a mailbox outside your home. You're going to get a, ma a bank of mailboxes in your community. What we're finding is that many people are beginning to move back to rural areas. And, it, and what we're seeing, too, is that our birth rate, as has been done over the past five years, is falling at very, at very low levels, which are very, it's very detrimental for the U.S. populace. Uh, in the U.S. in 2019, it saw nearly 3.75 million births last year, which was down about 1%. Um, and 2018 had the lowest level since 1985. So we're seeing a significant downtick in the number of births with the average woman, uh, average woman having approximately 1.7 children, which is, is significantly down. And there's a lot of implications that happen because of that. Yeah, I mean, you know, you can you can look throughout the course of human history and you can say, you know, once a once a nation reaches, you know, sort of the place where it's not replacing itself. Um, mm -hmm. You know, if, if every woman is only having 1.7 children, then every couple is not having two. And lots and lots and lots of those children um, are being born to a woman who is not married. Um, and so we're talking mm -hmm. about children who are not going to be raised in a household where there's a mom and a dad. I mean, the, the complexities related to and the trajectories related to all of those storylines um, – I mean, those are things that we know the outcome. We know the outcome, and it's not positive for a child that is raised outside of a home where there are two parents, preferably their own two biological parents. But increasingly in America, that's just not the case. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's, I, I always look back, and there's at least three contributing factors that we can point to relative to the, down, the downtick and the number of individuals that are uh, – number the fewer babies that are being born. One, you've got – more and more women um, that are taking up the marketplace, which is unlike there's the majority of the workforce is comprised of women. And so with women that are working, it just makes it a little bit more difficult to one, have a child and to take care of a child. And plus, we also see not just women in the workforce, but also multiple uh, uh, people taking multiple jobs in the workforce. 7.6 million Americans had held multiple jobs last year. That's a number we haven't seen in 20 years. The second factor being teenage pregnancy, which we can celebrate because teenage pregnancies actually down. There's been a significant decrease in teenage pregnancies and sexual activity over the past 15 years. And a large part of that, uh, many are pointing to, is, is the uh, expansion of broadband internet access, um, which is a whole other issue. And then finally, there's just the right here. Um, there's just the sense that we're waiting. And I, I'm emblematic of that. Uh, there used to be a day that individuals would get married when they were 21 was the average age, probably about 30 years ago. But right now they're getting um, millennials are getting married later and younger um, uh, Americans are getting married later. Average age for men is anywhere from 29 to 30 uh, we're seeing and it's 27 uh, for women. And it's really fascinating to actually see some of the breakdowns of the, uh, the numbers relative to the average age of first-time mothers is up to 26 from 21 in 1972. And for fathers, it's 31 up from 27 in 1972. 
but that even varies by geography and education. So first time mothers are younger in rural areas and in the South, and they're older in big cities and on the coast. So when you break it down according to this matrix of four, concerning the average age of first time mothers, if you didn't have a college degree, the average age was 23.8. Unmarried first time mothers is 23.1. With a college degree is 30.3. And if mm. you're married, it's 28.8. Gosh, and seven years apart, um, you know, and mm -hmm. add a college degree in there, those women are living in completely different worlds. Like, uh, oh, they are. yeah, a college educated 30 year old woman having a baby for the first time versus a 23 year old, uh, you know, high school graduate. I mean, those those two women are going to live in completely different worlds. And so I think that's part of the conversation as well. How do we as women, I mean, I know you can't weigh in on this, but, you know, I'll just say this to all my sisters out there. How, how as we do as women, how do we bridge some of those gaps? How do we do some outreach in our own local communities, um, you know, depending on which side of that conversation we're on? Um, so, Nick, can we pivot and have a different conversation? If you if you insist, I was really wanting to weigh in, maybe mansplain <laughs> if you a insist. little bit. If you, <laughs> if you no, go ahead. Yeah, no, go ahead. Finish, no, finish no, no. that. Finish I, that thought one out. Of the things, no, one of the things that I am very interested to see, uh, as you and I were talking earlier or communicating earlier about the Brookings study that found that half a million fewer children will be uh, will be born because of the potential COVID baby bus. One of the things I will be interested to see relative to women, I think one of the beautiful things that you saw with, uh, especially with Amy Coney Barrett, um, um, is that you're starting to see the potentiality of a flexible workspace and work schedule because of COVID, because we're all, so many of us are having to work remotely. The numbers are astounding, like a 300% jump in the number of people that are working remotely. But then also with that, is there, is there, I'm just worried, I'm wondering about projections into the future. Will this opportunity to work flexibility be for the benefit of women specifically in the workforce to help them to better understand that one, they can not only be ambitious maternally, but also ambitious professionally as well? Uh, so, I think that as the flexible work thing continues to um, sort of concretize itself, like I think it's, I think it's going to become yeah. a fixed part of who we are. I don't, I mm -hmm. don't think there's a lot of people going back to big office buildings. I just, I mean, there's mm -hmm. no, there seems to be no reason to do it. That's going to open up a whole, you know, range of other conversations. But um, I do think that there are people who um, have been homeschooling because they've had to. And they have mm -hmm. they have come to discover that, you know what, they really like it. They really like the flexibility. They really like um, having, you know, the opportunity to do things with their kids at various times during the day. They they like it. They prefer it. They don't they don't necessarily want to go back to the way it was before. And so I think that's going to um, be an interesting conversation going forward. But you and I'll have to um, that would be purely speculative today. So on the other side of covid, let's let's. <laughs> Let's plan to talk Deal. about that. Here's um here's a conversation that I like to have with you because I suspect you know how to read satire and you know when you're reading satire. Um, not everyone knows when they are reading satire today, and we don't necessarily know how we're supposed to read it. So I'm talking. Um, I'm going to tee up here a piece that was posted in the Huffington Post or Huffington at HuffPost.com, and um, this person, you know, was satirically. 
um, explaining why they had uh, joined a satanic temple following the death of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Now, the it's a satirical piece, but a lot of people who read it did not read it as satire and sort of Christian Twitter went bananas, um, you know, the, if, if, when this article was posted. So how do we know when we're reading satire and how do we read satire? Yeah, great, great question. So the average American will spend approximately 15 seconds on a web page. And more often than not, we're not looking for communication as much as ammunition for our particular points. This is known mm. as the theory of selective exposure. And so when they read, I would I would argue that when most people read the headline, at least of something like that, that served as a bullet in the culture war that they could dispense uh, across the other side that has whether it be Trump derangement syndrome or what, what have you. They're using that to be able to deploy to show the kind of the air of the other side. But when it comes to just reading satire, though, it's it's just it's one. It's helpful just to just to have a spirit like Jesus, right? Of what he says in Matthew 10, we want to be wise as serpents um, and innocent as doves. We want to be keenly aware of not only what we're, what we're putting before our eyes, but also what we're dispensing and communicating with our tongue via Twitter and the internet as well. And so I want to be mindful of that. The second thing is I just, I, I want to be very patient when it comes to tweeting. I've realized that Twitter, you can ha- have services that can uh, kind of erase everything. But I, I, I know that whatever I tweet out there is also going to, uh, is going on my record. Uh, one might say, and I'm going to have to take account for it. And so I want to be very slow when it comes to speaking and when it comes to writing those things. And then three, just if it seems too good, quote unquote, to be true or too crazy to be true, more often than not, it really is. And um, and so I, I want to be I want to be cognizant of just some of these kind of fringe stories. And, and really, uh, more often than not, I, I want to take an attitude of prayerfulness about the news and not necessarily be combative with the news. And so if I, when I saw this uh, satanic uh, woman, she joined a satanic temple as a result of the Supreme Court controversies and stories around that. I, this, isn't some, this isn't for me a story about, well, this just shows you the error of the other side or how uh, crazy the other side is. And it just it hurts my heart because, I mean, you think about what Paul said. Paul said in, uh, I believe it was Romans 9, he was like, I, I wish to be accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren. I'm the, Paul wouldn't have tweeted that out and said, see the other side. Paul was, I, I, I'd rather be separated from God for the sake of this woman here. And so I want to have a prayerful attitude when I, when I approach the news and see this type of satire. There was one, uh, one paragraph in, um, in this particular piece. And l- let me just add to what Nick has said. If you're wondering whether what you are reading is true truth, um, scroll to both the top and the bottom of the page you are reading. This is posted at HuffPost Personal, which means these this is this is a personal reflection by an individual. Um, you should also note that the person writing is described as a guest writer. This is not a journalist. If you scroll to the bottom, you uh, there's normally at the very end. Uh, a sentence or even a paragraph about the person who wrote it. So in this case, Jamie Smith is an attorney and a mom. She cares about civil rights, and she can be reached at, and it gives her email address. Uh, HuffPost then asks, do you have a compelling personal story that you'd like to see published? 
um, here's what we're looking for. Send us a pitch. Okay. And so you, um, you can participate in this process as well in terms of getting stuff out there. So here was uh, one, one paragraph in this, in this piece. And the reason that I lift this up, um, uh, Nick, is I think that we ought to reflect on how um, people who actually are members of the Church of Satan, actual members of satanic cults, how they might respond when somebody writes something satirical like this woman did. So she writes a paragraph in here as if she's an authority on the Satanic Temple. She says, members of the Satanic Temple do not believe in the supernatural or superstition in the same way that Unitarians and Jews don't believe in God, at least some of them. Um, So I thought that there was a, you know, she's swinging a, a hatchet there at Unitarian Universalists, Jews, and, you know, like honest members of the Satanic Temple. She says uh, they are not affiliated in any way with the Church of Satan, and instead the Satanic Temple uses the devil as a symbol of rebellion. So she's trying to, uh, yeah, she's trying to make an, an explanation in the middle of her piece. I guess my what I'm asking is um, when we see someone make offer this kind of commentary about what other people believe and the institutions or organizations of which they are a part, um, how, how ought we respond to that? Yeah, um, you know, it, it's fascinating because satire, even though it does, it's supposed to cause us to crack a smile, there is a sense that it does offer a little bit of illuminating truth in the midst of it as well. Uh, Shakespeare noted that when he said that jesters do oft prove to be prophets, right? It's this understanding that the, the comedian is often the greatest truth teller around. And what she's trying to do, I would argue, is uh, she's simply in the midst of trying to make you think, in the midst of trying to make you laugh, she's also trying to make a point here. And this is one of those points. And then I think it's that, again, then I think it's important for the Christian just to be able to stand up and say, well, I, I don't want this proven to be true about me. So one, it needs to change how I behave from a personal standpoint. But then, too, it also helps me to be better engaged with the article because I'm, I'm understanding the, one of the uh, principal points that this woman is trying to make in this piece. Yeah. Uh, the Satanic Temple. I did learn uh, a fair amount about the uh, the organization in reading this. Um, Nick, you and I are going to have to let it go right there. Thank you, as always, um, for joining us. It's always a delight. So great to be with you, Carmen. Just fantastic. All right, that's Nick Pitts. You can follow him on Twitter at JNickPitts. He's a fellow at the Institute for Global Engagement. We'll be right back. All right, next up, I've got Adam Carrington. He and I are going to talk about the nomination of Amy Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court. We're going to talk about her as a person, also as she is emerging as a symbol. And then we're going to also talk about her as a judge. All of that up next here on Mornings with Carmen. The New Testament records the story Jesus told about a young man who left home, took his inheritance, and squandered it on everything he wanted. We call him the prodigal. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. Maybe you have a prodigal in your home, a son that's wasteful, rude, or greedy, or a little drama queen who can throw the entire family into a tailspin with her outburst of selfishness. These are prodigals who've never left the house. Why? They're too comfortable. If I'm describing your home, you may want to make a few changes. Help him or her grow up through boundaries, consequences, and communication. In Jesus' story, 
The prodigal grows up and comes home. That's my prayer for your team as well. Looking to make positive changes in your family? Check out the helpful resources from Mark Gregston online at parentingtodaysteens.org. Carrington joins me now from Hillsdale College. We're going to talk about the nomination of Amy Coney Barrett to the U.S. Supreme Court. Dr. Carrington, welcome back. Glad to be back. Hope you're all well. Yes, I am well. Are you well? I I am. I am. Thankfully, healthy and happy. So there are about a thousand um, headlines that you and I could take up in relationship to the nomination of this individual um, let me allow you to write your own. What is what is the headline that you would most like for people to be reading today and repeating today in terms of the nomination of Amy Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court of the United States? I think a lot of what is coming together in the many, many articles is the two Amy Coney Barretts, the public Barrett, meaning what other people are are talking about in relation to her, and I'd say that is Barrett the symbol, and the other is how she described herself and in her remarks when she was nominated, which is Barrett the jurist, the the the, uh, the person who is, is going to be on the Supreme Court. And Barrett the symbol is very much about her biography and life, and I think these are very real and important parts. There have been attacks on her faith and her family. She has a large family with a with the kids adopted from Haiti. Uh, she is a very faithful Catholic, and I think there's been some some scurrilous attacks on that and things that show a great ignorance about it. There is an interesting question that comes up with her about feminism, that she acknowledged that she was replacing Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who was a star in the... Uh, movement for women's equality, for better treatment in careers and in life decisions. But I think she, in her life, shows the possibility of accepting the necessity and goodness of those gains while still saying there needs to be room for family, there needs to be room for a a workplace uh, family life balance, and that we actually, as a society, probably need to be more cognizant of how to make that easier for women. That's something that women I've talked to have certainly relayed to me. I certainly haven't experienced it, but that relayed to me the need to to be more accommodating for, for those balances. But I think that all has to be mixed with Barrett the jurist, that she described herself as taking a certain approach to judging that was going to be like the former justice she clerked for, Justice Scalia, that it was going to be focused on the text of the Constitution and the law, on the original meaning of both, and that that is how she's going to rule. She's not going to rule as a feminist icon or anti-feminist or a Catholic or or a woman with a big family or anything like that. She's going to rule as someone who wants to interpret the Constitution as, an, as originally meant. And what's interesting is that could, in the end, be fairly revolutionary. And there's all sorts of issues about affirmative action and abortion 
and Religious Liberty, where not so much her biography, but her approach to being a judge is going to be really essential. So I think keeping those two Barretts in mind, and especially keeping in mind how she describes herself, I think, are, the, are a way of bringing together some of the strands that I've been reading of the many, many takes that have been taken so far about her nomination. So I think that uh, a conversation about what you know, what Amy Coney Barrett maybe adds to the conversation that we have, it's an ongoing conversation that we have as a culture in terms of um, gender roles, um, the role of women not only in the home, but the role of women in, in every um, uh, professional setting. I think one of the conversations, Adam, that I expect to see emerge out of this is the genuine confusion that a lot of people have about where we are when we use the term feminism. You know, so so RGB, um, Ruth, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, you know, she was one kind of feminist, one wave of feminism. Um, and Amy Coney Barrett is really a different wave of feminism. But um, but you will see a an emerging generation of women who consider themselves third or fourth wave feminists, depending on how, how you know how you count the waves. Um who don't recognize themselves in Amy Coney Barrett. So just do you want to wade into um, this conversation that we need to have uh, and, and Christians need to participate in the conversation in terms of gender roles and, and the role of women in pro- uh, professional life? Right. I, I can try to mansplain that. Yeah, exactly. Uh, no, no. Well, I mean, but, but, but certainly from, from my perspective, at least, and, and trying to talk with, you know, my wife and women in the workplace, uh, at least I, I think things to think about that have been communicated to me are that on one is a little bit of the idea that women don't that have talked to me don't always feel free in the workplace to choose more of a home work balance that in some ways as, as people like Ruth Bader Ginsburg were really pushing for equal treatment in the workplace, taking into account the differences between men and women uh, in the fact that there's often differences in child rearing and child bearing uh, there's differences often sometimes in responsibilities or at least at different times in one's life that one way we need to think is how do we make the the workplace more hospitable to women who do want to have careers but also want to have families? And on the other side, how do we adjust expectations at times for men that – make sure that, and I know there are many men who do this, but who make sure that they're seen as partners in the household. And some of this is going to be legal or, or, or in the workplace, making sure that it's easier for women when they want to have children to enter, leave, and re-enter the workplace, making things more flexible for when they are working in the workplace for children. Uh, but it's also going to be cultural and societal expectations. And I think that there are a lot of research saying even more recent wave feminists will say in surveys that they wish they had more children than they actually did have. They wish they had more home life than they actually did have. And that doesn't deny that they don't want careers. But I think both legally and societally, 
what we're real, what what something like Amy Coney Barrett, I think, represents is actually more freedom for women to have a more broader range of lifestyle choices, the way her career has worked and the way we could accommodate more Amy Coney Barrett's in the future. Um, so I just people are now uh, at least some people are now wondering um, a question. Uh, they've been wondering. They haven't been wondering it out loud. And now they are. What does her husband do? So let me just go ahead and tell you guys. Um, Amy Coney Barrett's husband is a litigator. He's actually a white collar criminal defense attorney. Um, and he's a, so he's a trial lawyer and he regularly represents people who are charged with federal crimes. Um, I got to assume that uh, when his wife is confirmed to the Supreme Court of the United States, you know, he has a, a bit of a career uh, conversation to have there himself. He's also going to be, um, you know, on many days and in many ways, the primary parent uh, to uh, this passel of kids um, who they are, you know, who are a part of their family and they are raising. So all kinds of conversations going forward. This is a unique, unique situation. I don't know that we've ever had. Uh, a, in fact, I do know this. We we don't have a Supreme Court justice who's a female who has school age children prior to this. So this is a, a unique circumstance and situation. Um, uh, Adam, you and I got to take a very brief break. When we come back, um, let's talk a little bit about uh, expectations related to her legal ap- approach, her legal philosophy, what we think we know. The Amy Coney Barrett nomination uh, to the Supreme Court of the United States by the president of the United States following the vacancy created by the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg um, is going to supply substance for conversation for several days, weeks, potentially months. And why is that? Because she's not only a fascinating individual, she is a very interesting um, family and family structure. She's a Christian. um, And that's now being, you know, publicly debated. So we're going to have lots of strings to pull. The string I'm going to pull next with Dr. Adam Carrington from Hillsdale College is the legal philosophy thread. Um, And so, Adam, when when Amy Coney Barrett describes herself as a judge in the model of Antonin Scalia, what what do you think that means? Like, how how do we understand that? And this is nice because we've seen we've she's actually talked at length about this in other forums that I've seen. And what she means by that is she describes herself as both a textualist and an originalist. And she is actually contrasted that with another approach that she sees herself as not. And that is what's called a purposivist. I think I'm saying that right. And the difference you can kind of tell in the titles. Uh, a per uh, a per a purposivist says, "I'm looking, putting a lot more weight on what I think the purpose or the justice of a law should be, or was intended to be, and that's how a judge should approach interpreting and applying written laws as a judge." Her approach is to say, and she clerked for Scalia. She was actually considered one of the best clerks he ever had. And uh, is is this, the approach says no that what a judge should be giving more weight to is what did the words mean, what did they mean, and what did they mean at the time that they were enacted, whether that was in 1787 or whether that was last month. And the idea is not so much with this either approach 
both are in some ways trying to say that a judge shouldn't be imposing her opinion on the law, doing what she thought the law should be, but that she thinks that her and Scalia's approach is the best way for judges to do their job, which is to take the will of another, the legislature and ultimately the American people, and apply it to cases, and that saying that the words can bind us and that the original meaning can bind a judge is a way of saying that uh, the laws rule, not judges. And I think that's what she means when she's saying she's coming across and why she thinks her and Scalia's approach is the most effective. All right, I have looked up purposive and we have the purposive approach. I didn't know what the, I didn't know that was a thing. And then we have purposivism, purposivism. There, we're going to learn some words today, right? Yeah. So, you, you pronounce that much better than me. Yeah, I, I listened <laughs> I, to the pronunciation while you were talking because I was multitasking. I know. I apologize. But you did it. You did it great. There, it's there's actually a legal theory in the lexicon related to this. So um, Adam didn't make this up. Which, you know, that's good to know, right? So it, it is distinct from from textualism or uh, those who would describe themselves as originalists. I think that these are good words for us to learn and roam around in because, Adam, the reality is, as interpreters of Scripture, we all do these same things. Like there's Absolutely. a— Right? There's a yeah. parallel to be drawn here between how a, a jurist or a judge— uh, looks at the Constitution and interprets the Constitution and the way people today view Scripture. Well, theologically, there are two things. One, there's exegesis versus eisegesis. So exegesis, finding what's in the text as the text intends it, and eisegesis, reading in something outside the text, often your own preferences into it, which is very similar to, to, to this. And, and And also, I would say the idea that words, that words have stability and that words can command. So if God's word is really God's word, one, it doesn't change. Two, it is something that is both discernible and binding on us. And while I'm not going to say in any way, shape, or form that the Constitution or laws are are the equivalent of the Bible, there is a similar authority question where if this comes from the authority in our po- political society— then if laws really can rule, then they need to be something we admit can be understandable and can bind us and that we can really take apart. And so I think that there is some absolutely some parallel there. All right, making a note of that. I think that's a good thing to return to at some point. Um, What do you think that the commitments that she has to purposivism, let's call it that, um, what do you think those commitments mean for some of the real issues that are going to come before the court? I think that... It, for one thing, it means it, sir, well, an issue that this has come up interestingly is criminal defendants, where you'll often have really unsympathetic criminal defendants who get a fairer shake because the text of the law may not be what Judge Barrett or Judge Gorsuch or Judge whoever wants to do. They may want to lock, throw away the key, you know, lock the door and throw away the key. Uh, But if the law doesn't do that, they're often constricted by it. Now, for broader things, I think certain, I I think certain questions about uh, abortion and affirmative action and religious liberty, there may be preferences on the court one way or another, but I think some of the text 
that is in the Constitution and the First Amendment, that is in the 14th Amendment, that is in the history of, of these clauses, I think really could be important for rubber meets the road. How do we move forward on these issues? And you're going to really see very text-based, very history-based arguments being made in relation to them as well. I think actually, for example, this case that's coming up about discrimination in colleges against Asian Asian applicants that some may be aware of that might make it to the Supreme Court, I think it's very possible that affirmative action could end up being gone based in part on a, a approach like the one that Barrett would take, not based on what she personally may think or want. Yeah, because you might assume that um, that as a woman, she thinks affirmative action is a good thing. Um, you might also uh, say to yourself, um, it's not fair the way that uh, certain individuals, because of their race, are discriminated against in the college application process because schools are trying to actually meet particular quotas related to um, ethnicity, not uh, merits based on, you know, a, a student's potential for graduation or excellence or whatever the other criteria might be um, for for entry into an academic institution. It's a fascinating set of conversations. Um, you're going to you and I have to leave it right there today, Adam, but we'll circle back around to this because this is not um, this process is although going to be abbreviated. It's not going to be particularly short. So um, you and I'll have an opportunity to talk about this the next time you you join us here. That'd be great. We're learning how to read in many ways and talking about what it means to read. Which I think is really good, right? We did have a conversation with an author recently about um, the value of reading slowly. Relearning the value of reading slowly. Well, that was interesting. We read too fast. All right. Thanks, man. Thank you. We'll be right back. All right, listener, Scott uh, just uh, just texted in on the text line. Um, well, let me let me see if I can scroll up far enough to actually see his text. Oh, that's terrible. What, what's wrong with me, Paul? I can't get my little zip whip to huh. scroll up on the page. Can you read Scott's message yeah, there, the yeah, last blue moment. box? Thank you. Yeah, he said, uh, this is very challenging in the culture that insists that meaning is conferred by the reader and not by the author. This is why people don't understand original intent or the importance of constitutional jurist. Right. And so I just wanted to uh, affirm that. That's absolutely right. Um, So as you read, because you're going to get into the word today, right? You're going to get into the word of God before you try to get out there into the world. Um, Listen for the author. Discern the author's voice. Seek to understand God's intent as he's speaking. Seek to understand. Don't, Don't try to bring all your own stuff to the word of God. Allow the word of God to speak to you and to the concerns of the day. We got another hour of Mornings with Carmen up next. Okay, in um in a in a reversal of something that we talked about yesterday, so I just wanted to clarify this. The CDC has now said that guidance on airborne virus transmission of COVID-19 was published in error, that it was a draft, that it should have uh, not been published. So anyway, I just thought I would lift that up since Dr. Zach Jenkins and I did talk about that yesterday here on the show. All right, we got a whole nother hour of Mornings with Carmen up next. I have got Justin Gibney. I've also got David French. Today is the day that his book, Divided We Fall, is available, and we've got copies to give away. So stay tuned to the next hour 
of Mornings with Carmen. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.